So last night, Martine gave us a wonderful talk about grasping and creative engagement. And tonight I want to look at some uh, ways that we might cultivate or practice to help with this diminishing of grasping and possibly um, engaging more creatively. And one of the things that I've found in my practice is that it's it's possible to grasp the idea of not grasping. And uh, I think one of the first formulations of the Four Noble Truths that I came across when I was reading books on comparative religion in the 19, early 1980s or so was that um, suffering is caused by attachment. And with with if we kind of grasp that as a view, we can have a sense that the, the practice is about having a sort of ever-diminishing set of needs until that we just somehow become untouchable or impervious to circumstance and that that's the goal of practice and it's a kind of checking out from life or checking out from reality. And um, so I hope what we're, we're really managing to communicate is that the teaching is really much more as a map of how to participate in the dance of life. And I'm still, I'm still loving this whole metaphor of cultivation or this translation of cultivation um, as, as what meditation actually is and as a practice and um, thinking of the word flourishing which of course is related to flowers and so on. And actually what happens when we cultivate a garden is we don't get to some point where the garden is now perfect and it's all left alone. A garden is a living, a living, changing thing. And how do we, um, how do we keep tending the garden in a way that uh, optimizes its flourishing? So one of my favorite uh, suttas or teachings um, is called the Mangala Sutta and in this uh, um, a deva in the Buddhist cosmology there are these um, this kind of other other level of beings the devas who are like um, gods Buddhist gods or angels and the, they, the Buddha also teaches the devas as well as the humans so devas will come and ask ask him dharma questions and a deva comes down to the Buddha in the middle of the night, and this is a beautiful, radiant deva, and the deva says that human beings and devas are interested in how to find happiness and peace. Please tell me what are the highest blessings. And this is this word, mangala, means blessings. And sometimes I'd love to go through the whole sutta, but there's far too much in it really to... Uh, cover in a single talk but it strikes me that some of the things that uh, the Buddha then recites as being uh, the highest blessings in life are circumstances so things like uh, having wise friends a good place to live um, harmonious relationships with our family and colleagues and having education and a good ethical livelihood, and also the chance to hear teachings and to discuss them and practice them. So these are all things that we can actually actively seek out in some ways that we, we kind of, um, it's, 
It's helpful to actually go looking for and to pick up. But also there are things that aren't always in our control. You know, we can't necessarily um, control how much of this is available to us or that we have access to. So luckily, many of the other um, things that are amongst the highest blessings are conditions or qualities that we can develop or ways, you might say, that we can go about engaging with life. And there are four of these that I want to pick up on. So the first of these qualities is generosity. And this is often taught as being really the the foundation of the whole path of practice, that it's even more um, fundamental and also accessible than the cultivation of ethics or the development of meditation. And it's also maybe the thing that's most directly um, opposed to grasping as a, as a um, movement in the heart. So actually practicing generosity uh, really loosens our tendency to, to grasp things um, and, as me or mine. And it's a really natural, natural sort of impulse. So I was thinking actually that both generosity, this impulse to want to share, um, share what makes us happy and to give happiness to others, uh, and the impulse to grasp things and possess them. We see those really clearly in young children who will sometimes, you know, they'll find something and they'll, they'll, they'll really want to bring it to you and show you and give it to you. And it's like, oh, this is so exciting. And then sometimes they'll, you know, flip totally the other way and no 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 it's my toy and you can't have it and they can't have it and so these are really both you know grasping is a natural impulse but so is so is sharing and this is really embedded in the whole the whole culture um, of dharma so in the monastic tradition uh, um, there is this culture of sharing freely um, that all the all one's belongings, uh, or they're not really, but all the things that one needs for one's daily life are kind of shared uh, equally within the community, and then that the the community is supported um, on the friendship and the goodwill of of uh, of the um, the lay community around, and then the teachings are shared freely, and this is a the tradition that. Um, the insight meditation tradition that Gaia House is part of is kind of tries to keep alive. And we find this not just in Buddhism, but in, in many spiritual traditions, this uh, idea of sharing freely. And, uh, you know, I th- sometimes think that uh, injecting more of this into our, into our culture is something that we, we can't do too much of. So I have another uh, story from the same friend who told me about the woman in the supermarket. And this is, this is not a story. This is a true story. I'm not sure that the other one was. Uh, but this is a, a, another friend of hers. <laughs> well, I'm saying it's not, a, it's not somebody directly that she knows. I think this is the thing. So this a friend of hers um, who is a mother of three children, a single mother um, working 
hard and in quite difficult circumstances and had picked her children up from whoever was taking care of them after school at the end of a long day and took them to a drive-in to um, pick up some supper to a McDonald's or something. And she was feeling really exhausted and worn out and the children were hungry. And so she gets to the drive-in and they order supper and then she goes to, she's at the pay thing. And the cashier says to her, oh, the person in front of you has just paid for your supper, has paid for, your, has paid for you, so you don't owe us anything. And uh, yeah, that was like a beautiful, beautiful surprise for her. And then she had the thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to pay for the person behind me. So, you know, she had the, the, the benefit and the delight of receiving this unexpected gift from the person before her. And then that also stimulated, oh, I'm going to do that for somebody else. And I don't know how far that went down the chain. But it's interesting how, you know, one action like that can uh, trigger a whole series. Can, we don't know the impact of, um, uh, uh, that our action is going to have. So there's a real, there's a joy in giving and in anticipating other people's happiness. I suspect that the person who, you know, who paid for her in the first place kind of didn't know what was going to happen, but actually drove away with a good feeling um, and thinking, oh, somebody's going to get a nice surprise. And a similar thing happened to, happened to me recently. I was traveling to the States and I was at the check-in desk and uh, I'm, I've, I'm traveling quite a bit at the moment and I always fly on the cheapest tickets and uh, sit right at the back of the aeroplane and uh, I just uh, made a joke with the person at the check-in, oh I don't suppose you were going to upgrade me and I didn't think any more about it and then when I actually got to board the aeroplane I found that oh my seat number's different from the one I had and that they had actually given me an upgrade. And I was just really, um, it, it totally lifted my spirits and changed the whole, the whole experience of that journey for me. Just thinking this person, wow, this person has spontaneously decided to, to do this for me. And it's not like I'm a, you know, um, prestigious high, high spending customer or anything, but uh, just this pleasant surprise. And I wonder what was going on in that person's mind also for the rest of the day, because they could have said to me on the spot, oh, I'm going to do this for you. But they'd obviously thought, oh, I'm just going to give her a surprise. There's no need to tell her now. And then uh, I had this wonderful surprise when I got on the plane. So I think that was, uh, you know, that had a really positive effect for me and it had a positive effect for the person who did it. And one of the things in both these stories is that they were probably unpremeditated. So there's something about, um, there's, uh, there's the bumper sticker that says, commit random acts of kindness, or we may have seen it elsewhere. And something about the spontaneity of these um, acts of generosity is also really powerful because if we then kind of build up an expectation so one of the things that then happens to me is thinking oh well I hope that next time 
um, I'm going to get an upgrade. And then I've, rather than just appreciating what's happened, I've grasped the idea of, okay, this is, this is now my expectation or I want it to happen again. And uh, I've also heard some amusing stories from people on the retreat who've been in the garden and seen something really beautiful and it's just really struck them in just the right way, the most perfect snowdrop or the most perfect daffodil. And then you kind of go back there in the next walking period and you think, I'm going to find that again. And somehow it doesn't quite look the same. Or like Martine's plate of mushrooms. <laughs> so this giving and receiving are, are really closely intertwined, aren't they, like this? And there's also something about um, the willingness to receive that is an act of generosity, or the willingness to accept help. You know, what it's like when you see somebody struggling with something and you, you offer to help them and for whatever reason the person doesn't want your help. It's always a little bit of, oh, you know. And actually, we could, by, by choosing to accept other people's generosity or help, we're also giving them something. And if we connect with each other in this way, it's actually very difficult in those times to feel lonely because um, even, even the thought of doing something generous for somebody, it takes us out of that sense of self-preoccupation. And then closely related then, of course, to uh, the quality of generosity is the quality of gratitude. So really, as I, as I think about my experience with the flight, um, it was less of a pleasure to have slightly more leg room. I didn't get upgraded to first class, um, but to have slightly, you know, slightly more comfortable journey than actually to just to the, the surprise and the appreciation of what had happened were more, um, had more of a pleasant uh, feeling tone was more, was more of a pleasant experience than actually um, being in a different seat. And even now, when I think back on it, it brings a kind of smile to the heart. Thinking about it still produces um, a sense of happiness. So also consciously um, cultivating the practice of gratitude um, this is another of the highest blessings that the Buddha listed, the um, cultivation or the development of gratitude. One exercise which um, some of you may have tried is to, um, at the end of the day, do a, a list of things to be grateful for. So um, a way that I've done this is to actually, uh, and I think it's in one, one of the um, mindfulness uh, sort of typical mindfulness courses is something called a ten-finger gratitude exercise. And you actually, uh, at the end of each day, think of ten things for which you're grateful. And usually thinking of one or two is quite easy, but sometimes at the end of a day to think of ten things that you're grateful for can be quite a challenge. And what this does, it really invites us to uh, connect with uh, or to notice even the small things that we can appreciate. So if I asked you to do something like that now, you know, how, how, 
what sort of things would come to mind? So for me, they can, they can be things like simple things like somebody opening a door for you or smiling at you or remembering that uh, lunch has been cooked for us. Or maybe something helpful that somebody said or a thought that came to mind, a happy memory that came to mind um, or uh, some other way in which someone helped you or stumbling across something that you really appreciated outside. So in that way, we just start to orient the mind towards uh, a sense of fullness and appreciation. And there's something about not only about having the experience at the time, but actually remembering it, that we're, um, we're wiring this uh, sensitivity to what's wholesome, what's uplifting into the, into the system. And also that it helps to, it helps us to actually recognize things that we value. So um, another a practice that I did for a few months was to uh, exchange an, a text or an email at the end of each day with a friend with, a, a, and again, a, a gratitude list. And that was quite interesting because you sort of get, you get a double whammy. You have, you have the things that you've appreciated and also the things that uh, they've appreciated and then you appreciate their appreciation and then sometimes the grasping mind goes oh well they had a really nice day and my day was pretty tough and uh, <laughs> and so it's an opportunity to see that as well but overall um, that was a really I found that a really really helpful thing to do because you have to do it if you're if you're doing this with a friend and you also um, yeah you get to expand the sort of things that you notice again through what your friend notices. So recognizing the things that have benefited us and also the people that have benefited us. So acknowledging, um, acknowledging the people who've supported us. And then in this, in the Mangala Sutta, um, gratitude actually is paired with another quality, which is contentment. And I think this is something that we often don't pay very much attention to. You know, it's something that uh, can be kind of neutral and not very interesting. You know, we tend to look for the peak experiences or um, be concerned to avoid the most difficult experiences. So this is very closely related to the, I think, to the area of neutral, these neutral feeling tones that may or may not exist depending on one's perspective and uh, your exploration today. But actually, what happens when we bring an interest to the experience of contentment? Another, um, another word or synonym for contentment, I would say, would be satisfaction. And then the opposite of that would be dissatisfaction. And we know how um, grasping at 
different sights and sounds and things, we can really uh, amplify the sense of dissatisfaction. So Martine was talking about you know, wandering down the, the street and being drawn by the shop windows. And it's, ooh, and ooh, and ooh. So, but what actually, so we kind of, we're quite familiar with dissatisfaction in a way, but are we so familiar with the experience of satisfaction? So that the kind of um, ultimate image of dissatisfaction is also in the, the cosmological realms of traditional Buddhism. We have the realm of the hungry ghosts, who are these beings with uh, very small mouths and huge bellies, and they can never satisfy their wants or their cravings and this is a it's really a, a mental space that we can inhabit um, if we're not careful so we've had really good opportunities on the retreat to um, observe the experience of eating with mindfulness and maybe you've observed how the feeling tones change so that we we start out and uh, it's all very appealing. And then, you know, as we begin to get a little, a little fuller, then maybe the, there's less interest there in what we're eating. But also if it's something that we, we really like, we can, as Martine said, be, um, we, we're enjoying it so much that we're kind of into the next mouthful before we've even finished this one. And one of the, one of the um, trainings, um, in the, in the sort of monastic trainings when you're eating a formal meal is around the way there are many sort of little rules of etiquette around you the way that you eat but one that i found really interesting uh, really helpful to learn from is the the um, training that you don't start taking a mouthful of food until you've finished the previous mouthful of food which sounds like a really um you know, very restrictive thing to do. But actually on retreat, for example, we have an opportunity to, to play with that. And what's it like when you actually pause to experience the sense of completion of eating a mouthful of food? You know, is there an experience of contentment or satisfaction? And what does that feel like? Is that a pleasant experience? And if we really... Uh, savor and um, inhabit that experience does that change our relationship to wanting the next and in my experience it, it really does there's a much um, you know we, we kind of know when we, we know when we've had enough whereas when we're just mindlessly eating you know we get to the sixth biscuit and we suddenly you know, we don't know where all the biscuits went so this is a really um, really valuable thing to do and then we discover that there's a lot more contentment and satisfaction. And I'm not just talking about the realm of eating, but there's a lot more contentment available in life than we notice if we're constantly running on to the next thing. And one area where I think this is really, really um, becoming more and more of an issue is the area of technology. So I, I notice with myself if I, if I want to use the internet for something or there's something I want to search or look up that I will find what I was looking for and then immediately my attention will be grabbed by something else and there's a really strong impulse to just hop from one thing to the next 
And how much time can we spend kind of mindlessly surfing in that way? And what's the, what's the result of it at the end of it? You know, how do we feel at the end of having spent a period of time like that? Whereas what if we found what we were looking for and we did this thing of dot B, stop and have a breath and just notice the sense of, okay, I found what I'm looking for. That's sufficient. And then we have a choice. Do we re-engage with it or not? Similarly, I suspect with Facebook, if you're a Facebook user, as I hear many things about, uh, you know, when uh, especially young students who I who I get to teach sometimes is what is the most stressful thing in your life or the thing that occupies the most uh, useless time. And most of them say Facebook, which is quite interesting. Or email. You know. So again, you do an email and then I've kind of done what I need to do. And then I think, well, I'll just check and see if anything else has come in. And then you check that and it's whoosh. And then there's another thing to attend to. So what, what would it be like to actually really take an interest in that sense of something being completed? To taste the satisfaction of having accomplished something. And then maybe notice what we have done as opposed to what we haven't done. Because how much of the time do we kind of think about what I haven't done and what I still need to do rather than actually acknowledging this is, this is what I've accomplished. And I think there's a big relationship between this and, and self-kindness because often you know, we are the number one target of our dissatisfaction in various ways. So something um, that is interesting to add to a gratitude practice is putting self-appreciation in there because most often when we um, list the things that we're grateful for um, we tend not to include anything about ourselves often so you know this is a, a to actually have a conscious intention to do that can be also be a really um interesting practice to play with so generosity gratitude contentment and then the last quality but definitely not the least that i want to um, talk about is the quality of equanimity and this is really the, the culmination of this um, teaching on the highest blessings. The last verse says, being touched by worldly conditions, but with a heart that is undisturbed, safe and secure, this is the highest blessing. And this is uh, really describing um, the goal of the practice. And this is really the highest level of equanimity and to acknowledge that this is the most the most difficult thing to accomplish um, equanimity though you know when the the buddhist teaching is is full of lists and equanimity usually appears right at the any, end of any list that it's part of it's like the most um 
the most the ultimate thing um, to manifest or the last the last thing to kind of pop into place but um, it is something that we you know that this practice is not a, a linear thing and it is something that we taste intermittently and that grows as our practice develops just as we're not continuously mindful but we have moments of mindfulness so we're not continuously equanimous but we have moments of equanimity and can we learn to develop them so this this translation of uh, a heart that is unmoved or undisturbed um, it kind of it could it could imply what I mentioned at the beginning that one becomes kind of impervious to external conditions um, but this word of uh, not moving is also the same word that's used I think that the root this camp camp uh, root is the same um, the same word that appears in in the word for compassion anukampam which I said I think the other evening that compassion can be um, described as the heart that quivers in response to suffering so how can if if compassion is part of this um, this state of equanimity um, then how can it, it, it obviously this unmoving heart is not a, a heart that is untouched or insensitive it means more that it's undisturbed it's responsive but it's undisturbed so the word for equanimity is upeka which means to look over or to look upon and it's really um, very much has the flavor of this this or is is very close to this uh looking looking at the whole this kind of holistic vision that um, comes from our ability to uh, step out of um, clinging to a particular aspect or grasping a particular aspect of our experience and coming back to the experience of as a whole so even actually as we develop these moments of mindfulness, we are developing this quality of equanimity. And then another word for equanimity, this is two words, like many of these things, there are two words for it, or more than, more than one word, and um, is tatra majatata, which means to stand in the middle of all this. So to stand one's ground in the middle of experience. And two images that I find really um, helpful to um, express this is one maybe of a tree that is really firmly rooted in the ground, a strong old tree. And yet a tree has the ability to move. Trees can move an extraordinary amount in the wind, but it stays rooted. Or of a mountain that sits there through the changes in weather. You know. So can we be develop these qualities of a tree that stays firmly rooted and yet can move in the wind. And it's because it can move in the wind that the tree um, stands. Or of a mountain that can um, weather the different changing circumstances of our lives. 
And following this analogy of the wind that moves the tree or the weather that passes across the mountain, be in the context of equanimity, um, it can really help to know and to recognize what the Buddha called the eight worldly winds or the eight conditions, worldly conditions that help to keep the world, that keep the world turning around. So these are the uh, other things that I want to just mention this evening. So these eight worldly winds, the first two are the winds of gain and loss. And there's a, a Chinese uh, folk story that kind of um, expresses this quite well. So there was a, a man called Si Wang who uh, had a beautiful female horse. And one day the horse disappeared and the villagers all came to Si Wang and offered their sympathy for his misfortune. And Si Wang said very simply, that's the way it is. And then a few days later, the horse returned with a beautiful stallion. And the villagers all congratulated Si Wang on his good fortune at having acquired this prized stallion. And he just said, that's the way it is. And then sometime later, his only son was riding the stallion and fell and broke a leg. And the villagers all came to commiserate with Si Wang about his son's accident. And Si Wang said, that's the way it is. And shortly after that, a war broke out and all the young men in the village, except for Si Wang's lame son, were drafted, went to battle and were killed. And the villagers exclaimed at Si Wang's good fortune. But Si Wang just kept his same demeanor and he said, that's the way it is. So this is a very kind of simple parable, but we all have versions of those stories, you know, how um, gain turns to loss, turns to gain, turns to loss. We all have, all have this story. And it can be really good to remember this because we, we forget you know, to reflect and consider. And we can know this experience of gain and loss and change on a long-term perspective. And we can also see it happening, you know, even moment by moment um, in, the, in the time of a day. We can know change through experiential investigation. So as we become um, more uh, understanding of this, then we can uh, respond somewhat more with the attitude of C1, who one suspects had seen many things in the time of his life. And then the second pair is praise and blame. So this is something that we're all probably very familiar with. People love what we do or hate what we do. So I was thinking of um, when I was a, a novice nun and making breakfast for the community and uh, we used to have porridge every day and then there was suddenly a, 
this exciting thing that we began putting tahini in the porridge to make it more interesting. And so I made the porridge and I was really generous with my tahini and then somebody came up to me and said, oh, the porridge was really wonderful this morning. And then I was feeling happy. I've done a great job. You know, people like my breakfast. And then a, an hour or two later, somebody else says, oh, I, I really hate all this tahini that's going into the porridge now. And I find this really difficult to digest and I wish they wouldn't do it. And, and then, mm, you know, um, and we can't please everyone. We, and, and this is really... It's really obvious, but uh, another thing is giving teachings or giving talks. So um, some, sometimes, you know, we will use a lot of poem, poems in talks, for example, and then people will come and say, oh, please, can I have a copy of that poem? And there you get lots of notes saying, please put the poem up on the notice board and so on. And then somebody else will say, oh, I'm so tired. You know, I, all I hear in Dharma talks now is Mary Oliver, never anything from the Buddha. Yeah. And so one can get really attached to these responses and think, okay, great, you know, I've kept everybody happy. Or, and then, and uh, so we can reflect on this and we can see how, you know, we, we, we latch on to the pleasant feeling of, somebody being happy with what we've done. We latch on to praise and then we get dejected when we're blamed. And yet with a little wise reflection and a little mindful attention, we realize that this is actually nothing to do with us. It's just uh, that different people have different preferences. And another thing that we can do is that we can actually, a form of grasping at praise is to reject praise. So somebody will say, oh, you did a really good job. And we just kind of, you know, we cut. This, is, this can be a very difficult thing for many of us to hear. So just to, to notice that this too is a form of grasping. Could it even be a practice to just say, okay, thank you, if somebody says something nice to you? Hmm. So fame and disrepute is kind of connected with praise and blame, but this is another, another pair of uh, conflicting worldly winds that blow. And uh, we can really see how this depends on the information that we have about people or the information that is circulated and on the zeitgeist. So I live in Oxford and uh, there's been all this kerfuffle about whether or not the statue of Cecil Rhodes should be taken down from his old college or not. And this is an example of uh, the kind of person or the a situation where somebody is in certain circumstances in a certain historical period held in really high regard. And then as people learn more about actually um, the, the situations with which he was involved or the um, the perception of what's what's admirable and what's not admirable changes, then so does the reputation of the person. And yet we see that this is really very much subject to conditions. So to what extent do we really allow ourselves to be swayed by that when that's what we encounter, when it impinges upon us? And then the final pair of uh, 
worldly winds may be the most fundamental, which kind of underlies all these others, is, uh, are those of pleasure and pain. So I think today's practice has been a really interesting um, possibility for looking at that, for looking at the way the experience of pleasure and pain uh, is so um, ephemeral and shifting. So I don't know what your experiences today have been of noticing uh, the changing nature of, of pleasant and unpleasant but I imagine that there will have been things in there that kind of surprised you or that you maybe hadn't noticed before. So I was, as I was sitting here meditating and uh, doing, directing my attention in this way, I became aware of my glasses resting on my nose and a feeling of some heaviness of my glasses resting on my nose. And I was thinking, okay, well, what is that? And it was probably... Uh, minus 0.5 or something towards the unpleasant. But maybe even not, you know, this was very much in the territory of I can't quite decide if this is actually unpleasant or if it's totally fine. And then I saw the thought pop into my mind, my glasses are too heavy. So they'd stopped being heavy and they were just too heavy. And as that thought came into the mind, it kind of ratcheted up to about a minus 5. And that was really curious to see that it wasn't actually the experience that was unpleasant. It was the thought about it that was so much more unpleasant than the experience. And then later I heard my, after lunch, I think it was, I heard my, I heard my tummy rumbling. And again, and I felt my tummy rumbling. And again, I would have been very hard pushed to say, was this actually an unpleasant experience? It probably wasn't high on the scale of pleasant, but there was actually nothing uncomfortable about it. And then I, I realized that the microphone was quite nearby. And I thought, oh, I wonder if that's picking it up and it's being amplified to the back of the hall. <laughs> and then it kind of went up to kind of minus five or so unpleasant as I started to think, oh, maybe everybody's listening to my tummy rumbling. And then I thought, oh, well, I probably shouldn't have eaten X, Y, or Z at lunch. And it went up even further, maybe to a minus six or minus seven. So I was really struck by both those things of how it was not the experience, but the thought about it that really um, drove the degree to which it was an unpleasant experience. And that the most loaded thought was that it shouldn't be like this, that it should be some some other way, or I should be some other way. So that was just really, um, yeah, curious to me. Um, and, And seeing how this practice of really attending to pleasant and unpleasant to the experience of pleasure and pain, we can be much less um, bombarded by this experience or swayed around by it with this mindful attention.
And that's not to deny that there are, of course, these are very minor experiences that I'm recounting. But it's really interesting to develop some um, capacity to disentangle the elements of even much more challenging experience. So these are the winds that turn the world around, the winds of gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, and pleasure and pain. And mindfulness, in a way, gives us the opportunity to occupy the place of equanimity, maybe the, the still point of the turning world that revolves with these, um, with these dynamics. And this equanimity, I think, embraces both compassion and mudita. So when I was thinking about pre, um, pleasant, pleasure and pain, I was also thinking about happiness and unhappiness. And the thought of the Dalai Lama came to my mind and how he's someone who can switch from a moment of you know, really um, empathic sadness with somebody to a moment of complete jollity and that uh, this quality of equanimity is what enables one to really um, to be moved, to be moved with compassion and to be moved with joy and then to come back to the point of balance between them both. So that's pretty much what I have to say. And I hope that there's something useful for you in there in terms of uh, ideas of continuing your contemplation or continuing practice in a really um, practical way as we go forward after the retreat. So I thank you for listening. <laughs>